Taste the Mediterranean through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. Save on Animal Welfare Certified Bone-In Beef Short Ribs, Sustainable Wild-Caught Sockeye Salmon, and more. Find sales on Parmigiano-Reggiano, Charcuterie and Ground Lamb. Grab an Olive Bull Bread from the Bakery. Plus, wines from the Mediterranean start at just $8.99. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. Must be 21 plus. Please drink responsibly. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y. My next guest is Robin D'Angelo. Robin D'Angelo is a academic and she is a lecturer. She's an author who works in the fields of critical discourse analysis and whiteness studies. She's an affiliate professor of education at the University of Washington, and D'Angelo has been a consultant and educator for more than 20 years on issues of racial and social justice, and is the author of the international bestseller, White Fragility. The book that we are going to be discussing today on this show is Nice Racism, How Progressive White People Perpetuate Racial Harm. This conversation is dope for so many reasons. We have a conversation around race, around what it looks like when we study and really address racism with white people. And the tagline of her book is even more important, how progressive white people perpetuate racial harm. For so long, many authors and writers from James Baldwin to Martin Luther King to Malcolm X, to um, Toni Morrison, to so many different people, speak about the liberal left, the liberal white people, who use niceness as a way to perpetuate and continue to push racial harm. So Robin and I, we had a conversation and it it really stuck out to me. There were so many things we discussed. We discussed the this very specific nuances between white women and black men and that particular power struggle. Um, and I remember very clearly what that meant when it came to um, issues around of mice and men and of of, of racial disparities and the gender disparities. So there becomes that. We talk about racism in academia um, we have a conversation around something called affinity groups and we also just have a talk about cancel culture wokeness um, why it's okay to generalize about white people and what that means but we also we do mention you know resma menekem's uh, my grandmother's hands you know we we touch on um, for Robin, what it's like as a white woman going through these kind of conversations and having these chats and studying this stuff and then bringing it to the fore and what that took and what that takes mentally. 
um, each and every time. And um, yeah, it's a brilliant conversation. I really enjoyed listening back to it when I was editing and going through um, the conversation again. So that is the conversation and that's what's coming up. Um, yeah, I want to say just exercise caution when entering these conversations. These aren't, you know, they aren't the easiest sometimes on the ear, but I would say be courageous in the conversations that we're moving forward in. Um, as ever, please rate, review and subscribe. Please leave those Apple podcast ratings and really just keep bumping it and sharing it and bumping it and sharing it because the more you do that the more visible the podcast becomes and when it becomes visible it means that you know these conversations can get out there and really hit as many people um, as possible you know so often as I said as you all know I've been doing this for three years now and people are only just finding it and I love when people discover the show I love discovering new shows so I love when people discover this show it means that something's working but please rates reviews and please I also want to see share it tag me when you share it in places and um, yeah let's get on with the conversation this is a conversation on nice racism with Robin D'Angelo Okay, well, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, Robin. Um, I really appreciate you and your work. Um, I've been following it for a while. And um, I wanted to just, I wanted to start with just, um, oh, just tapping into what it, what it's like being an academic today. Um, and because you, you tackle some quite challenging topics um, and, uh, you know, and you would come up against quite a bit of uh, friction, I'm imagining, um, especially in the past two years, past two, three years. Um, just tell me a bit about your experience about, you know, where it started and kind of what it's been like for you in this space. Yeah, I, I'm definitely a different than most academics in that I came late to academia. So I grew up poor and working class. I didn't go to college until I was in my late 20s, graduated with a bachelor's uh, in my early 30s, uh, the PhD, uh, I think around 50 years oh, wow. old. Um, and so I always think about myself as coming from practice to theory, unlike a lot of academics who go from theory to practice. So I was out there doing this work in various forms for a very long time, um, recognized that I had an extraordinary experience as a white person because for a living every day, I walked into rooms of primarily other white people and started talking about racism um, that that's exceptional. Uh, it goes against most white people's socialization, which is avoid this conversation at all costs. Yeah. And I, I really wanted to be able to disseminate all I had learned more widely. And so that's when I went back for my PhD and kind of got the theory to, to put behind all that I had experienced and critical discourse analysis is just a fascinating area of study. And it, it's so, it so suits, uh, what happens in conversations and how to think deeply about what's happening. Um, I often say it's less, I, I don't get too hung up on, is this right? Is this wrong? Is this true? Is this false? But the question that really resonates for me is how does it function in the conversation? What mm -hmm. happens when we're talking about racism and a white person says 
X. What does it do to the conversation? Does it open it or does it close it? Right. Mm -hmm. That's what's important to me. Um, to be an academic today, now actually, I actually left academia a couple mm -hmm. years ago in order to do what I'm doing now full time. Right, okay. uh, I'm an affiliate, so I'm connected to a university, but I'm not employed. Um, I, I will say that I've never seen whiteness more fiercely protected than in academia. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I think it's getting uh, fairly scary. You know, when, at least in the U.S., when you're allowed to bring cameras into the classroom in order to film your professors, you know, supposedly pushing critical race theory, um, all of this. There are places in the United States today where it is literally illegal mm. to say that racism exists. So my heart goes out to people who are uh, in the classroom every day. You know, I um, am able to do what I do with people who choose to hear me, uh, which is a little bit different yeah. in terms of you thinking about going into a PhD program. I mean, it does give you um, credibility and legitimacy. And that's important because our message is not an easy one. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, there was incredible growth for me in the program. Yeah. So I, I support you in doing it. Just, <laughs> just be aware. Um, You'll have to tell yourself at times, just get through this and then I can do what I want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The thing is, like, um, and I've spoken to, I don't know if you know um, Kehinde Andrews in the UK. Oh, he's a, a very familiar yeah. name, yes. So, he's a, so he does, he's like, a, he's a professor of black studies in Birmingham up here. And he was, um, and he was, and he was saying similar things because he basically said, you know, and you know, he was, he was saying, you know, that the institution is racist and, um, you know, and for particular reasons, and he kind of laid out those examples. And it just kind of um, struck me, as she said, you know, you will never see whiteness, like, fiercely protected, other than in academia. And he was and he basically said the exact same thing. Um, and why do you think that is? Hmm. Um, top of my head i mean it is it is the elite it is you mm. know a very very high status um it's very competitive right um you want to protect your position it's been the domain of white men for a very long time and so you know that kind of arrogance that goes with um that position you know the positionality of being an academic um, particularly for, I'll just say it, particularly for white men. Um, and there's a kind of needing to protect one's position. And, and with, you know, it is a racist institution. I would say all institutions are racist because we live in a systemically racist society. So it's not special in that way, but I think the, um, the eliteness of it, um, the, the, the direct tracing of fields like anthropology, and medical research, right, to really pretty, pretty deeply problematic, you know, racist practices are going to be, um, they're going to cause a particular level of defensiveness. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, a lot of teachers are not lifelong learners, right? We profess lifelong learning for our students. Um, but teachers are tough, right? They, they have sub subject matter expertise that they cling to. Um, and are not very good at having that questioned. 
Yeah, so that's a, that's why I think when it so, so when it comes to um, academia and it comes to um, that sort of leadership, I always when when things like critical race theory are being out outlawed um in the US and you know people are like really and even teachers are really avoiding having those conversations I always think to myself then but when then what is your position as a teacher like what is your position as somebody is to uphold knowledge it might be a very romantic and idealized view of what I think teaching and knowledge um expansion is but um to hear you say that it just kind of makes me think okay then why is it not a continual self-development um, situation for, for teachers to be able to kind of expand themselves in that way? Um, you, in some ways, they don't really have to, right? Mm-hmm. So um, there's another piece that just uh, um, I was reminded of, and that is um, a lot of your promotion is based in one, your publications, uh, to your service and three, your student evaluations, but evaluations do not take into account your positionality as a, as a teacher or um, the subject matter. So a black woman teaching a class on racism uh, is pr- uh, to a predominantly white student population, which is generally what it looks like, um, is likely not to be evaluated very well likely to be evaluated as angry or, you know, all of those things that are uh, in our perceptions. And um, that is not taken into account that, that this, this professor is trying to teach arguably the hardest content Mm -hmm. from her position. Uh, And so that that's just evaluated like anything else. Same with publications. Um, you know, if you've got a, a mainstream conservative, oh, and I'm going to say the word conservative, and I don't mean necessarily on the right, but just established mm-hmm. elite journals mm-hmm. um, may not want articles that challenge challenge them, right? Or that they have no background in, in peer reviewing, right? So those things are going to also um, count against you. Mm-hmm. If, if in the area of service, which is a lot of committee work, you know, if you are committed and you're bringing up uh, racism and putting it on the table, you're not going to be seen as much of a team player. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it's not that it's not that the people who are committed aren't doing the work, but they're up against all of that. Right. 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 Okay. Okay. So it's like it's it's a key part of the of the system or the institutionalization is to contain the thoughts to make sure that you are um a part of the team you stay within the team you don't break what's going on in the team but you have to break that in order to expand yes so white solidarity that concept comes up right to to break with the team is to break with white solidarity there are consequences for that they're not the same for me as they would be for you but they're they are still there another thing that happens in academia is that that assistant professors who start out radical often get that normed out of them. So in, in, in order to get tenure, you have to kind of be a team player, be perceived as such. And by the time you get your tenure, a lot of that sadly, you know, has been normed away. 
Um, you know, kind of out of their radicalism. It's, it's, it's tampered down quite a bit, <laughs> unfortunately. So nice racism. So you've written in your new book is nice racism. It's called how progressive white people mm-hmm. perpetuate racial harm. And it's something that I've read about quite a bit. I had um, Eddie Glau Jr. on here mm-hmm. um, several months ago. Obviously, I said Kehinde Andrews. I've had quite a few um, people speaking about this from um, from an academic point of view, and then you know, really assessing people's work like Baldwin and Martin Luther King, and talking about the liberal, the white liberal um, elite, and how they kind of perpetuate racism. And um, I wanted to just ask you, just uh, from as a starting off point, then what what is niceness? What, what is niceness and what does that mean um, when it comes to racism? Okay. Baby steps for the people. <laughs> so what is niceness? I mean, let's, let's just start with, if there's a continuum and on one end is just very clear, very explicit, the N word, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, hate crimes and so forth. Well, there's another end of that continuum, uh, the undermining and the degrading and the slights and the indignities and all of the exhaustion, but that you can't necessarily put your hands on. It is not expressed explicitly. I often think of it, of it as a smile on my face with a knife in your back. Um, I'm smiling at you, and yet I, I am also managing to constantly undermine you, you know, in every way, and you can't really challenge it or it's very hard to challenge because it's so easy to deny and even the concept of nice is from whose perspective so when you think about having a conversation about race um have you ever been in one where they'll say well let's have some guidelines for the conversation let's assume good intentions let's respect one another i mean in these vague like respect like Mm -hmm. you know that that what would seem respectful for me if I am a typical white person, is probably going to be exactly what doesn't feel respectful or safe for you, right? So in other words, let's everybody remain calm. Let's not show too much emotion. Let's not challenge anybody. Let's assume everybody meant well, which is basically don't be real. Hmm. Um, And so this idea that there's some kind of universal, you know, uh, set of criteria that, you know, creates a welcoming conversation or a nice uh, interaction is problematic. So nice racism. Yeah. It's, it's the more subtle stuff. More subtle stuff because even um, it's just on several occasions I can think of in my own, like growing up. um, I think I remember I was around 20 um, and I think I was I was working as a youth worker. So I was working with a lot of young people. I don't know, probably be similar to summer camps out in the US, but I was doing some sort of counseling work with them. And there was this, um, for, I, thinking about it, I'm thinking, how did they, how did this question come up? But they had to do these really kind of divisive questions to kind of like, you know, get people polarized onto one side or the other to get oh. the young people um politically minded because it was gearing them up mm-hmm. to vote because they were turning 16 and all this stuff um and i think there was one of them it's like britain was better under under colonial no britain was better when it was an empire 
And I was like, no. <laughs> I mean, like, you know what I mean? Like, I was very much against that because obviously being Jamaican and having, uh, you know, having the, the the lineage of what Empire does, it wasn't really, um, it wasn't fun. But then I got into this really heated debate with this um, real English guy who was my age, at the, at the, yeah, my age. And he was very much, he was really defending it. He's really defending it. He's really, but he was like, but it was again, I, he could see me getting visibly irritated and annoyed. And then he said those, those words. It's like, let's not get too emotional. Let's stay logical. Let's, I'm just like, I'm being very clear. Like, and I was like, and it was just that kind of managing my, managing my feelings <laughs> all the way through this debate at the time when at a time when I didn't really have the language to address what was happening. Yeah. Those, first of all, those kinds of debates are so problematic, right? So you basically they subject you, right? They subject marginalized people to having to hear that narrative, you know, articulated. Um, It's, those are just not appropriate discussions or debates to be having. And I think that, I would say whoever set that up didn't get that. (laughs) Um, And even the word logical just really like uh, stood out to me that this person laid that on you. I actually think white people are profoundly irrational when it comes to race. Um, We are the most irrational. Mm. Um, We are the most invested in the status quo of racism. Um, We are the least equipped to determine you know, how well we're doing. We're invested in not seeing uh, our collusion. Um, and we're so not used to, this is, this is white fragility. We're so not used to being out of our racial comfort, right? To be thrown off of our racial equilibrium. And let me just say, as a white person, I live, love, work, create, move every day through <laughs> a society that is racist and i do so in comfort yeah i am comfortable in a racist society right and uh i have been conditioned to be so and so we're not going to get where we need to go from a place of white comfort but um we're so entitled we come to feel entitled to that comfort so when we're thrown out of it we don't respond well um and there i mean we respond effectively White fragility is very effective. I actually see it as a form of everyday white racial bullying. Right. Okay. You know, we just make it so miserable and punitive for you to challenge us that that hopefully more often than not, you'll choose not to. <laughs> you'll choose to endure, take it home and do whatever you need to do to get through the night and have to get back in and do it again. Um, so that those are some of the reasons I think white people are actually quite irrational and, um, what a perfect moment of gaslighting to ask you to be logical. Right. Right. <laughs> and I, and, you know, and I have this, this whole thing about the whole thing about language, um, and not having the words or being able to, to, to see like, you know, being like, it's just all this stuff, like as I was going through the book, all this stuff really just came back to me. Like it was, it was there, and I, and I have, and I have thought about it. Even when I was reading my grandmother's hands, that came back 
a lot of that stuff came back as well but I had to pause that book for a bit it was doing a lot mm-hmm. um, but when I was going really like the stuff came up um mm. just experiences at university and the like and it was just really interesting but when you say that you say you move through society comfortably I mean obviously you're made to feel comfortable about about mm-hmm. this stuff um what was it like you, you you relayed in the book about um you know you being at you being at dinner with friends and you know you're kind of like outlining all the ways in which your family is racist da, 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 or and, and kind of to these to this couple that is with you um just going on from there like what what has it been like kind of for you like recognizing all of those all of that stuff because for me as a black person thinking of all the subtle microaggressions that I've that I can that I am now older and wiser enough to see right. is one thing but and it, it comes to me quicker because I'm black but you being a white woman and then having to in, actually invest time in in this and then see it what was that like for you in that kind of revelation yeah you know and and well the piece that I will add to you saying that you didn't have the language at that time to recognize mm. those microaggressions. I would also say, and odds are very high, you had no backup or, or support had you had the language. In other words, had you had the language and used it, things might have gotten worse for you, not better. Right. Right. Um, so I, I just wanted to, to make that point. And um, you're talking about a, a incident I opened the book with, Nice Racism, uh, where I went out to dinner with this couple. They were black. I'd never met them. You know, I was meeting up at a restaurant um, with my partner who knew them. Mm-hmm. And the moment I saw that they were black, I got very excited <laughs> and felt um, immediately urgent to communicate that I was not racist. Um, so, I mean, even right there, that urgency that a lot of white progressives feel to establish we're not racist is just not um not useful. I can't imagine you don't pick up on it. And most of uh, the evidence we offer up to establish our lack of racism is ridiculous and not convincing. So the evidence I offered up that night was to regale them with every every moment I could ever recall of a racist comment mm. or action my family ever did, followed by, can you believe they did that? Can you believe they thought that? thinking that what I was doing was showing I knew that was racist and I would never do that. Of course, what I was doing was subjecting that couple all night long. I can't even imagine how miserable that dinner was for them. And another piece was I picked up on something wasn't right, but the urgency overrode that. And I just kept going. It probably, if anything, the more anxious I felt, the more I was engaging in this behavior. And sadly, had they called me in on it, I would not have handled it well. It would mm-hmm. have been worse. Um, my partner, who wasn't engaging in my behavior, also wasn't intervening in any way. I, I, I'm, I'm mapping all that out because I really want listeners to understand all of, mm-hmm. all of those pieces. You know, so looking back, I, I, I just cringe at it. I, I wish I had access to them to do some kind of repair. Mm-hmm. Now, that also brings up, um, for those of us, the white folks who really, really want to do better by this and get this right, there's a lot of um, agonizing about that, right? Because we can overthink it. Because that would come up for me, like, okay, 
am I burdening them with my need to repair that? Mm. Right. Do, would they want to revisit it with me? Um, you know, who is that really for at this point? I mean, those are the kinds of things we have to ask ourselves and we're never going to get it right. There, mm. There's not easy answers to it, but this is not simple either. And I think too many white people uh, just think it's such a, you know, the, the, what do I do? That question, that's the number one question I get. And I actually don't think it's a sincere question. Mm. I've kind of lost patience with white people asking, what do I do? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like that, that idea of just wanting to fix something to not sit with mm-hmm. the discomfort of things yeah. being things. It's like, obviously I look at, I'm, if I'm looking at the gender, the gender yeah. question, men will be like how can I fix it what can I do to stop this happening rather than sitting with it and being like okay so process rather than outcome and I think that's and I feel like that's kind of the it's kind of the position from when it comes to a lot of different um oppressed groups and depending on the seats of power right right it seems like I often say it's more of a way of being than doing. Like when mm. you've truly integrated an, an anti-racist framework and understanding, you're just going to kind of be different. Yeah. <laughs> um, doesn't mean these things won't happen, but it, it, it's it's less you looking for some specific answer um, as, if, as if there's some answer that would be right by everybody. So it, it's more do your best, be willing to move with, you know, the consequences and to repair. And I I appreciate that you, you can find an entry point. Mm -hmm. I'm, I proudly identify as an angry feminist. I have no shame at all about that. (laughs) And I've been thinking, obviously, you know, since I was very, very small, I understood the world was not a fair place for girls. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, let me just acknowledge that even in this moment, I understand that those categories themselves have been problematized. So I am mm-hmm. a cisgender yeah. female, my pronouns are she, her. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, the, I swam against the current so I could see the current. Unfortunately, a lot of white women use that as an exit point, right? They don't want to look at where they're benefiting or colluding with somebody else's oppression. Um, I think it's, it's a really helpful entry point. I think black men are in really interesting position because in relationship to black women, I think you can access what it's like to be in a dominant position. But I think in relation to white people, I I don't think you could just say, Robin and I are talking right now and I'm a man and she's a woman. So it's purely about sexism if something happens because race just confuses that i actually think the most complicated intersection is black men and white women Mm. like sorting out what is going on (laughs) yeah and 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 we've seen that through throughout history right Mm -hmm. and that's that's Mm -hmm. been has been a very complex and dangerous and traumatizing timeline of things that's happened and even 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 last year with what happened in Central Park? Was it Central Park? Oh um, yeah, with yeah. Chris Christopher Cooper and Amy Chris, Cooper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hashtag no relation. Related. Hashtag no relation. Yeah. But um, <laughs> you know, we and we saw that play out in itself quite quickly. But then, if you speak to to an extent, if you speak to a certain number of black men, they probably have got experiences of you know dealing with dealing with quote unquote white women. Um, who have either lied about them or 
manipulated a situation to um and utilize their their power in a way and yeah it doesn't mean that black men can't run sexism at white yeah. women and yet when you do who's behind me to back me up the entire system and amy cooper is such a great example it, it in a fluke it didn't turn out that way yeah but christopher cooper could have died that that day and there's no way amy didn't know that when she mm. when she made that call, she completely expected the entire system to back her up, yeah. as traditionally and historically it would have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that there's a difference there, right between. Yeah. And and just another final point on that, I I was when that whole situation was happening, I was thinking to myself, we have been over here in the UK, we, we um in schools one of the core texts in English is of mice and men. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking back to, I remember thinking back to it, I think because it triggered the thought with this whole thing that happened with Amy Cooper and whatnot. And, um, and there was a bit where Curly, there's a character called Curly, as you, well, you all know, but for the listeners sake, there's a character called Curly and he represents a particular position in American society. And then there's Curly's wife, who represents a particular position in American society, hence the reason her, no one knows her name. Her name's Curly's wife. And then there's Crooks, who is um, a black field hand. Um, I think, yeah, it was Crooks with a black field hand. And he, um, in, on the ranch with them, sorry. And he, um, he has a particular status. And I think there was a there was an interaction um, where Curly's wife was be, was dismissed and belittled by Curly and the other men who were white and Crooks who's black felt was laughing along with the white men so he kind of was tapping into himself as a man mm-hmm. but then Curly's wife turned around and says I don't know what you're laughing at I could get you hung up by a tree with, with with one word and then yeah. Crooks then had to remember his position in that and I remember reading that when I was 17 17 no 16 15 16 and i i understood it but i didn't understand it at the yep. same time i was like oh okay well right and then as soon as this happened again so after all those years so what 10 years later 10 11 years later when this happened last year i started thinking about i that came up and i started thinking about it again and i was just like this is it's been it's, it's we've been we've it's we've been shown this as kids in our education and yeah it's shown up and it's played out it's playing out um in a way and we've seen it obviously in real history in real in real history with like Emmett Till and other other examples yep. but when we see that I was just like we, it's it's been there you know yeah you mentioned I don't know if you've watched the chair have you seen the chair on Netflix I have I was gonna say <laughs> I think they managed to show how you can't quite get your hands on <laughs> what that Bob Balaban character is yeah. doing, but boy, he's doing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I find that, I find that really funny, but it, it, it did make me think um, to ask you about uh, what you thought about wokeness and cancel culture. You know, in the UK, the, the woke has been quite, um, has been demonized pretty much. Yep. I think because we don't have, we don't necessarily have a constitution in the same way the United States does. So things just aren't kind of like, it's 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 different um so 
laws and things are being altered and molded um, in order to fit the culture of like as you said protecting whiteness in a, in a way um so i just wanted to know what you thought as an academic and uh, some who worked in academia um about you know wokeness cancel culture and just you know what that looks like for people teaching professor loretta ross makes the distinction between an adversary and a problematic ally. And that's what I wish I'd see more of. Um, you know, is this person truly an adversary to you or do you fundamentally have the same agenda, uh, but you, you think there's some problematic, you know, dynamics happening? Uh, I, I wish that I would be granted that kind of grace <laughs> from the left. Mm -hmm. um, I think it, I think we uh, tear each other down in a way that those on the right don't. Those on the right will back each other in the face of just egregious <laughs> behavior if the agenda is shared and if it serves the agenda, right? But I feel like on the left, we, we are so... Um, perfectionist in a way that's not possible and we end up tearing each other down so that's what i see in terms of cancel culture is is we need some nuance i mean there there are things that are just that's not acceptable and there's a line there um but i see a lot of what's happening being much um different than that Mm. And wokeness, I do have a, a pattern in the book I talk about as outwoking. I'm not using wokeness the way the right uses it. I just mean um, the competition amongst white people to be the most down, right? The most woke, the most anti-racist, uh, which I, I just find really problematic. Do you think that we're ever going to um, move past you know, I would like to think that that this will come around. I, I look at people like uh, Monica Lewinsky and Anita Hill, uh, who were uh, even even Britney Spears, right, who were just vilified and mocked at their time. And then I see where, where we are now. I hope it comes around. I am a little worried about um, the particular impact of social media, you know, kind of like maybe the cat is out of the bag in a way that it can't get back in. I think the scene in the yeah the scene in the chair that was really I, I want to say upsetting for me, but made me feel uncomfortable was the recording the filming him in the class, mm -hmm. and we had some funny times when I was at uni in lectures. This was back in two thousand and ten to fourteen, <laughs> um, and social media wasn't in wasn't was nowhere near as big as it was now um but i couldn't see myself filming a, a lecturer i mean i would go in phone in bag and then just focus on the hour that's there because everybody would see the the context of how the how the lesson panned out but then to do that with malicious intent it was with malicious intent and um because yeah. for, for context on the chair there was a scene where the lecturer um, made a very particular gesture to his his chalkboard, um, and it was filmed, but, but the context was snipped. So and and it was taken well out of context, and um, 
and yeah and it, and it and it became quite a it became a thing <laughs> it became a big thing for his career for the for the university for the students for the the, the chair played by Sandra O. but um it's on Netflix now so if you want to go and have a look um but um yeah just yeah just general thoughts around around that and kind of yeah. will we get will we go will we move through that and how do you think we will well, that that scene is a great example. They, the student is looking to to make him wrong, right? This is not a professor who has been problematic from the beginning. I mean, I can also see a case for being able to film someone who's putting out really problematic information yeah. in a class. Uh, that's not this situation here. This person knows it, but there is the the social capital of clickbait and having your video go viral. I mean, that's something we have to watch that the seductiveness of that kind of 15 minutes of fame that is also driving this. Um, and that we have, I, I would really, really like to see people on social media looking at their sources before they forward. There have been articles written about me by far right white nationalist newspapers mm. who know, know how to mine those divisions among the left and exploit those and they have put out information about me that's just not true and it it gets picked up on the left and it goes viral um and i'm always thinking to myself the right just gave you your talking points you're doing their agenda for them you know at the minimum check your sources mm, <laughs> before yeah. you forward something i don't know if that's ever gonna happen yeah uh, i just um, don't know yeah what does it do for you emotionally all of oh. this because it's 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 i imagine that at times it feels thankless and um you know it's a lot of work you're putting in and what does it do for you emotionally having to having to do that daily and i'm i'm gonna just say it's been devastating um mm. it's I protect myself. I keep on going by not being on social media. I don't think I could get out of bed. Um, you lose perspective. Um, I do believe overall my, I mean, I know that my work has been really valuable and really helpful and useful for a lot of people, but those aren't the voices that are criticizing me. Does does not mean there is not room for criticism, but this kind of ties back to our conversation about academia. When you're an academic and you put something out there, you expect uh, your peers to engage with what you put out and to push and pull. And that's different than personal. You as a person um, being told you are immoral and unethical. And that's something that I haven't been prepared for. And that's been really, really hard. Um, and so I keep a file of the beautiful emails I get. <laughs> I read those when I need to. I, I try to avoid the other stuff. Um, and, you know, I, I have different ways that different forms of support I put around myself. But, mm. yeah, it hurts. I mean, the average person is deeply upset if their supervisor gives them a bad evaluation, right? Or gives them a good evaluation with just three more critical pieces of feedback. That's all you can think about, right? The three mm -hmm. critical pieces. Now yep. try opening up the, you know, the New York Times or the Atlantic and seeing your name and then just a, a vilifying critique of you as a human being. It's more than most people can deal with. I, it was 
It was not something I was prepared for, and it's been hard. The the intersections of going to therapy as a result of a racist society and what that does mm-hmm. to the psyche. Did you ever go to therapy and have that conversation around what that was like as a as a white person in that like to to manage that or was it something that you kind of or did you have any other methods of managing that for yourself yeah i'm a deep believer in what's called affinity work you know that affinity work or caucusing where you get together with people who share your racial identity to address the particular ways you've been shaped by systemic racism so if you were in an affinity group as a black man likely one of the things you would work on is the message of inferiority. I mean, you can you can push against that message, but you can't avoid it, right? And I'm sure at a very early age, you understood that it's better to be white in this world than mm. not to be white, right? So that that's a very tender, sensitive place. That's not for white people to be uh, observing. But I do think it's work that likely needs to be done. For white people, the work is internalizing the message that you're inherently superior. Yeah. Um, and that that's work that we really don't need to be doing in front of you. <laughs> you yeah. probably don't want us to do in front of you. And so affinity groups are specific for that kind of work. And I've been engaged in that for, for years. Um, I, I have a group of, of eight other white women who all do what I do at fairly close to the same level. And it's weekly. Mm. Um, And certainly I have uh, people of color in my life who are there for me that I can work through stuff. So I don't think I could be in my integrity if I didn't have those forms Mm. of accountability and places to just show yourself, right? To, to go and do that deeper work. Yeah. So affinity groups, that sounds. And Resma is one of them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He's amazing. Yeah. Um, Yeah. He's amazing. it's fantastic. Um, and so, so did you, would you say it works like group therapy or is it not therapy, but just a, what would you say more of a, just a support group? Yeah, I think it's more of a support group facilitated and would definitely the agenda of, uh, it's a very intentional, we are here as white people to, um, work on our racism and, you know, that, that's just, a given it's not you know it's not an educational space trying to teach you that you have racism um so i have gone to therapists there was a period there in the uh, shortly after the summer of 2020 when i definitely thought okay i need some help this is mm. like over the top for me and mm. I need, so yep. um i did do that for a period but you also have to try to find a therapist mm-hmm. who understands that and sadly, <laughs> that institution as is as white as any other. Yeah, yeah, it's an everyday struggle. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's an everyday struggle. Um, and kind of a final thing, I was thinking, why you've you've got a really provocative chapter title called "Why It's Okay to Generalize About White People." Um, and you know, like when when people when people make these kind of statements around racism and stuff, you're like, oh no, not all. Or when or when it's like you know, when it came to when it was me too, it was not all men. And it was yep. you know when it was and it's obviously 
you know, Black Lives Matter is like, oh, not all white people. It's like this, they, people try to create this exceptionalism and, um, and things to avoid their own feelings of the situation. Why is it okay to generalize about white people? <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew I had to take that on right away because that, that's the one, you know, guarantee for a white fragility meltdown is generalizing about white people. And, you know, a lot of critiques of, of white fragility were, oh, gee, can you believe she's saying all white people are racist? And I always want to ask the person, okay, so tell me, what is the criteria by which somebody would be racist? Mm. You know, is it possible? Are some people racist? And if so, what is the criteria? And almost always it's going to come down to conscious, intentional dislike and meanness. And I can guarantee you that I've perpetrated um, plenty of racism in my life and not one moment was conscious or intentional. Um, so we're, we're just not having the same conversation if that's your definition and that is the mainstream definition. And if, if that was the one that I was using, I would agree that it's an outrageous claim to be making. But I'm talking about a system we're all in and that none of us can be outside of. How you respond to it can vary. I also know every exit exit point that white people will take. I've been doing this long enough. If there's any exception granted whatsoever, white people will take it. Mm -hmm. So I'm just put. Let's talk about the rule. This is this is observable, describable, well documented. Mm-hmm. You know, behavior and patterns. Yeah. Um, let's grapple with the collective experience. Of course, you're a special, unique individual, and I don't know you, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, but when we, make, when we move to individualism in a conversation on racism, we're back to how does it function? It take, takes racism off the table and exempts that person. Yeah. And, and I always say, if you want to be special and unique, then just answer this question. How did I learn my place in the racial order from X, Y, and Z, right? from all of these different positions, from this experience, or how has being white shaped how you experience what you think except exempts you from racism? Oh, for example, you might think, well, I'm a Ashkenazi Jew, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so are you Ashkenazi Jew of European heritage? So you're white. <laughs> how does being white shape how you experience being a Jew? Mm-hmm. How does... Being white shape how you experience being gay or trans. What does anti-blackness look like amongst white trans people or white Jews? You know, whatever you want to take and say that is your exception, put whiteness on it because whiteness is on it. Yeah. Sounds easy enough. I know. On the some some ways, it's not rocket science. I'll never forget, and you may have heard me share this, but asking, you know, a facetiously a, a mixed group of people, how often have you tried to give a white person feedback on their inevitable and often unaware racist patterns and assumptions, and had that go well for you, right? And you know, there's laughter, there's eye rolling. The number one answer, never. Number two answer, rarely. And I followed up one time with, well, what would it be like if you could just give us that feedback? 
And we received it with grace. We reflected on our behavior and we sought to change. What would that be like? And I'll never forget this black man raised his hand and said, that would be revolutionary. And I'm just yeah. like, damn, I mean, revolutionary, that's like a really big word. Like a really strong thing, right? Um, that's, that's how big of assholes we are. Can I say that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's how difficult we are, that that is a freaking revolution, that I would receive that feedback with some humility and mm. grace and mm. reflect on it and seek to change. That's how difficult we are. But also, I don't think that's a very tall order. But it is a tall order from the dominant paradigm that says only mean people, you know, could be racist. When you change your understanding of what it means, it, it just, it's so liberating. It just opens it all up. And then it's not a tall order. It's something you actually appreciate. Thank you. I I didn't see that before. And, and now I see it and I, I don't want to do that. Mm. And this is the reason why I do this show. Um and have these conversations it's around it's about conversations and taking away something and learning and sitting with it and meditating on what it is um, and i think we could do more of that we could do more with that um that level of just mindfulness i suppose mm-hmm. um, it comes mm-hmm. um i want to say thank you robin for just this hour it's been an amazing um amazing chat um do you have any books that you want to suggest um, for people to take away outside of nice racism and white fragility? <laughs> Thank you. Um, and outside of Resma's My Grandmother's and outside, Hands. And outside of my Resma's, yeah. Um, absolutely. Charles W. Mills, um, mm-hmm. The Racial Contract. Okay. Uh, Dr. Mills just passed away last week. He's a yep. sociologist, um, head of African uh, studies, uh, I'm not sure where you have to look him up. Okay. Um, the Racial Contract was one of those books that I just just couldn't put down. And it's it so clearly establishes white supremacy as the organizing um, the organizing framework for for where we are today. And the only one we don't name or study. So it's just a beautiful book, uh, The Racial Contract. Okay. Um, White Rage by Carol Anderson is mm-hmm. is a kind of a deeply researched and academic articulation of of white fragility, right? And she she says every inch of black progress has been met with white rage, and I think you can see that. You can look at the summer of twenty twenty, the global BLM movement, and then look where we are right now. Mm-hmm. So Carol Anderson's White Rage will lay out really clearly that cycle. Okay. And why we can never be complacent. Amazing. Um, well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for just spending this time with me and just talking to me. I appreciate it. Oh, so it's much. an honor. Thank you.